If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We're going to uh, continue there. We're of no shortage of passages in Scripture uh, that characterize, and I want you to hear this, that characterize the lives of those who trust in the Lord God, who believe in the gospel and who believe into Jesus. And you've heard us say that for three weeks. Believing into Jesus. Believing in Jesus uh, as we read it in our text today again is saying into Jesus. In other words, that faith is into Him and runs in and through Him and all that He is, uh, all that He does, and all that He will do uh, in bringing about the consummation of the redemptive work of God. So, those who believe into Jesus, uh, they are people of joy. In other words, joy is directly connected to faith, life, love, and following Christ. I'll share a few of these passages of Scripture with you. You may want to jot them down. Uh, We'll not turn to them. Just listen to them. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, joy in Him. And He'll give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Deuteronomy 12, 18. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Jesus, in Luke 6, 23, said, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, so their fathers did to the prophets. John 15, 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Galatians 5, 22, Paul's writing to the church there, and he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. In 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul writes, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. And in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 25, Paul writes, Convinced of this, talking about that God, he's sitting in a prison cell, convinced of all that God has been doing in the course of his life and where he is, he said, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I want you to think about this. It's just a few. Since this is true, then why do the lives of so many who profess Christ not reflect joy? Maybe the question should be, why does your life not reflect joy in your relationship with Christ? So here's our aim this morning. From our text, I hope that we will be awakened to the joy that is in knowing Christ Jesus. 
one of the reasons for our offering of the book that we presented uh, earlier today. Uh, to savor Christ. That's what we hear, to savor Christ. In other words, take joy in Him. Our lives reflect that joy in Him. So, from our text, I hope we will be awakened to the joy that is in knowing Christ. And this has already happened to me, and, and I'll share this a little bit later on, but that we will be deeply convicted over the sin of our complaining spirits as it relates to matters of our own struggles. Now, you said that's kind of a stretch for this text. No, it's not. It's at the very heart of it. If we are told to rejoice and we don't and we complain, then we are, we are admittedly sinning even in the course of our struggles. And then the third thing, and that our love for Christ will be propelled to such a level in this life that it will overshadow all other desires. I want you to hear that again. That our love for Christ will be propelled to such a level in this life, okay, we, often we talk about, well, we'll love God in heaven. We just don't have a whole lot of love for Jesus right now. Or our lives reflect that we don't have a whole lot of love for Jesus right now. But that, that won't be the case for us. And it'll be propelled in this life that it will overshadow all other desires. That's my hope for me. My aim for me today. And, and for each of you. So let's look at our text. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We're going to back up and read our text again. And you've already heard part of this today. But read part of it, our text from last week and then through verse 12. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see, uh, see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
Now you'll notice that we read our text from last week. Because in the Greek, that text constitutes one long sentence. Verses 3 to 12 is just one long sentence. That means that there is in this text a single thought that is being conveyed and supported by the structure of this sentence. You say, well, why be so technical? Well, it's, it's important that we hear what's being conveyed. Peter is conveying that the Christian life is a life of joy and sorrow. It's a life of joy and sorrow. The poet William Blake, who, by the way, was not a believer, penned this. Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. It is right it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. What he didn't realize is that that is not true necessarily for the unbeliever. We don't just safely go. What he did realize is what is true about life. And all we have to do is observe it in our own life. There is joy and there's sorrow. There's joy and there's woe. The Holy Spirit through Peter is saying to those, and Peter, remember, let's remember the initial audience, those who are sovereignly called, we saw that, sovereignly saved, strangers scattered in Asia, that the truth of their suffering is to be considered in the light of their salvation. Okay? So for us today, uh, for us to begin to understand the significance of joy in the life of the believer is that we have to view all of life, all of our circumstances, one, that is coming through the sovereign hand of God, and two, we have to see it in light of our salvation. In other words, in light of the work that God has done in Christ Jesus. In light of, as we have seen, that inheritance that He has protected for us and the reality of the fact that He is protecting us for that inheritance. It's not just that the inheritance is protected. He protects us for the inheritance. And we saw that and we have pointed to it earlier. So last week we gave attention to uh, salvation's future reward. What is that? That inheritance. In other words, we're looking ahead uh, to heaven. Uh, we sing about it every week that we gather here. Uh, we deliberately select songs that will help us look at life here, what it means to walk through faith, what it means to trust Christ, the grace of God, and then looking ahead uh, to heaven. For some of us, as far as what will be good, for some of us in what we will experience in life, heaven is the only thing that we have to look forward to. There are times in this life where the struggles are so heavy and the hurt and the pain is so deep and the anguish is so real that if we did not have heaven to look toward, if we didn't have heaven to look toward, we just wouldn't have anything to look forward to. 
and, and he reminds us of that. Now, that's not the whole of the Christian life, but it is interesting that when he begins to talk to these strangers who have sovereignly been chosen by God to be strangers and aliens, when he has sovereignly called them to suffer, that Peter begins, the Holy Spirit begins, not with what they should do and how they should do it, but in the very fact that laid up for you is heaven. And God has protected it for you. It is not going to go away. It's not going to be defiled. But remember, as we said last week, and he protects you for it. Peter was pointing the church to the reality that the reward of salvation is kept in heaven by God and that they're being kept by God for heaven. And there is coming a day when the Lord returns when they will receive this reward. And it's certain because God planned it. He chose them for it, mind you. This is not just some arbitrary happenstance. And He is protecting it and He is protecting them. That's true of you today uh, if you have trusted Christ, if you're a believer. There's great joy in that. We recognize that because of the very next thing that Peter says, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Now, he's not commanding them to rejoice. He is just seeing their life and he recognizes that they rejoiced. They were reflecting that they rejoiced in this very fact. He's reminding them of this. He is encouraging them in this. I wonder today... If our looking toward heaven brings about within it such a joy in our life that our lives reflect the fact that we have joy in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the reward that He has laid up for us. I'm reminded of that evening that... uh, He had just met with his disciples and they had shared their last meal together. And what does he say? Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you and I'll return again and receive you into myself. And then he goes on to tell them that he is giving them this joy, this overflooding sense of hope and joy. And that's what he's pointing to. But then Peter says something else. There is another reality of the Christian's life. There's the joy, and then there is the suffering, the woe. How does he say it? Well, look there in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though. Okay? In this you rejoice, though. We, we see something else coming. What do we see coming? Well, they're going to be challenges to your life. They're going to be challenges to your salvation. And he points to that because he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now Peter moves on to the point that the church recognizes that their present conditions their present circumstances in their own lives is that of suffering and hardship. 
How do you view that in light of salvation? How do we view that in light of our salvation? They're grieved by various trials. Grieved by various trials. We're believers here today. Are we grieved by various trials? What's Peter referring to? Well, he points us to what they are experiencing by this particular word. Various trials. In other words, they're varied, but this thing of trial. I want to kind of help us get to an understanding of this. It was helpful for me. I want to look at a few passages of Scripture that uses the same word, and I want us to see what's being said in the course of, of the New Testament. When this word is used, what are we talking about? If you have your copies of Scripture, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, the author writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, this should immediately spark a remembrance on our part because we have just left Exodus. What's being referenced is Israel's history. We just spent time understanding that portion, at least a portion of that as we work through Exodus. Until they entered the land of Canaan, what was their life like? Well, they were navigating through life with the promise of God, mind you, that had been given to Abraham. So I don't want us to make it sound like it is, it is not real. They had a promise we can forget promises. But they had a promise. But here's what they didn't have. They didn't have any position. They didn't have any power. And I thought about it a lot. They had no political permanence. None. And they returned to that state. We talked about it just a moment ago. Booney reminded us of that as we looked at our, at our confession. They returned to that state when they sinned and when their kingdom fell in 586 B.C. and in 722 B.C., Peter is pointing, or the author of Hebrews is pointing back to that, those trials, that time of testing, that time of struggle that was built around the fact that they had no position, no power, and no political permanence. And where do we find the people that Peter's talking about and talking to? Well, they're still there. They're strangers. They're scattered. Sovereignly so, okay? Sovereignly so, mind you. And they are being reminded of that. But they're living in a world where they're marginalized and they're being persecuted. I think it would help us today to remember that as believers, we are still sovereignly strangers, sovereignly scatter, sovereignly suffer. And we have said this over and over again, while we have been insulated to some degree because of this cultural Christianity and because of the blessing of God upon the United States in just the way it was formed, we have been spared some of this, but we have mentioned that the reality of these trials are increasingly worsening. We are being marginalized more and more. And rightfully so. 
And we are finding ourselves in the course of even our own culture where it seems that we have no power. We have the Holy Spirit. But we don't, we don't have any political position in the course of all of this. And you know what? That's okay. In fact, that is a good thing. In fact, all of the rhetoric that we hear a lot of times about the fact that, that we deserve this, we need to get back to this, we have to be reminded that God sovereignly chooses and He lays these circumstances out. And in this call to go back, we don't need to be called to go back to a day where unbelief was still unbelief. We need to look ahead at our suffering and recognize it in the context of God's sovereignty and look ahead to a place where we do have a home, where we do have position, where we do have power. And yes, we do have political permanence because we live under the reign of King Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. We'll see another, another way that this is described. You'll remember the, the parable of the sower and the seeds. And here comes the explanation to a part of that. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation, the same word it's said, translated tribulation here, the same word trial, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. Notice here the same word is used. It comes because of the word, the word of God. In other words, having heard the gospel, the gospel brings reproach. And in this case, the one having heard the gospel abandons it. Peter is looking and, and encouraging these believers uh, in hopes, and, and we'll see in just a minute in, in, in assurance, but in hope that they won't fall away. They won't fall away. He understands their trials are coming because the gospel is being opposed by those around them and they're being caught in the crosshairs. And he's encouraging them not to fall away. He has this in mind. These strangers, these aliens, that these are the kinds of things that are coming. Galatians chapter 4 verses 13 and 14 if you will turn there. Paul Paul writes here, and let me give you the background. Paul has been beaten, drug out of town, and left for dead. Okay? That's his condition. He's preached the gospel. He's been beaten. Body's been mutilated. Been drug out of town uh, and left for dead. We've seen those kinds of things in the westerns where they kind of hook them up to a horse and they drag them out and they cut them loose and they leave them out there with the expectation that, uh, that they're not going to recover, they're not going to revive, they haven't been, haven't been killed, but they're being left there to die. 
and Paul has been rescued in this. He said, and you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Peter understands that there is going to be the struggle and the hardship of seeing people suffer. Paul was taken in and the people ministered to him. And I believe in using this word that Peter is referencing the trials of witnessing the physical suffering of those in the body of Christ. I think most of us know how hard it is to watch someone struggle and suffer physically. It's a real trial. And yet we recognize that in that day, he's pointing to these people and he's saying these are real things. And in Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 through 41, and he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into trial. He uses the word, it's translated temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You'll remember this text, or at least Luke's account of it as we considered it uh, on our, in our Monday Thursday service. We saw Jesus praying in the garden. He's battling the temptation. The temptation is to abandon the cross. Not so much because uh, of being afraid to face death, we talked about it on that Thursday night. The issue at hand was he knew the suffering associated with bearing the righteous anger and wrath of God that was going to be poured out on him. Then notice that Jesus returned to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. Mind you, he has already told Peter, you're going to be sifted like wheat. He had already told him that. And he said, and I've granted it. And he's told the other disciples, he said, all of you are going to fall away and you are going to face trials. And then he calls them together to pray, but rather than praying, they go to sleep. And when he comes back to them, he's looking at them and he's thinking, oh my goodness, I mean, here I've been in anguish. He has sweat drops of blood over the anguish. And he comes and they are asleep. And his concern is for them. And Peter's concern is for these people. So he says, though, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. But the trials are not without a purpose. Notice what Peter says. In fact, they are necessary. They're necessary. So if we're living right now and we're not in the midst of trials and seems like everything is just fine and we're just going alone, or even if the most of your Christian life has been that way, 
and you've not watched people suffer and agonize and you've not been under persecution and you've not been under temptation and you've not been under stress and you've not been under the heavy weight of this defending your gospel and defending the faith, if that's not been the tone of your Christian life, I would say I, I, I wonder what's going on with you. Maybe you're not a believer. Or maybe you are and it just has so little, and I can't imagine that with the Spirit of God living in you, that it has so little impact, so little movement in your life. So the question that comes is, what purpose do trials serve? What good comes from being marginalized? without any power, position, or political permanence? What possible good can come from being beaten and left for dead because you've preached the gospel? What possible good can come from a temptation and onslaught of spiritual attack? What possible good can come from watching a friend suffer with cancer, waste away, and die? What good can come from that? What good can come from struggling with mental health issues and depression? Well, everything about us would say what? Nothing. Nothing good can come from that. But notice that in God's economy and in God's Word, He says the opposite for the believer. It is sovereignly ordained and it is good. It's good because under the pressure of all these things, what is happening? Well, let's read. What is happening in the course of all of these things? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, in other words, faith is being refined. Belief is being strengthened. Courage is being established. Perseverance and the ability to be, to be able to continue to move forward is taking place in the course of all this. And it doesn't come any other way. We don't see in Scripture where that comes any other way. It only comes when our faith is being refined under this kind of pressure. And Peter states it this way, this refined faith is more valuable than gold because even when gold is being refined, if we can get it to its purest state at the end of the day, what is going to become of that gold? That gold will be consumed in fire. That's the point. But what comes of the refined faith? Notice, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now there's two ways this can be taken. And I think both of them, if we put them together, gives us the right answer because they still result in what is best in all things. First, Peter may be referring to the fact that believers will be glorified with him. And then what he said in Romans chapter 8, 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of the adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Remember, we were told back in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We said last week that we are being called to bless, to praise, to honor Christ's Father and Christ's God. Jesus' Father and Jesus' God. To do what? So that He becomes our Father and He becomes our Lord and He becomes our God and we look to Him in that way. We are being pointed in that direction. And then the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now hear this. And if, you, if you're not in Romans, you may want to jot this down. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul goes on to write there in Romans chapter 8, talks about uh, the, 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 the consummation. We pointed to that in one of the articles that you've got, and I don't remember which one it was, but that foray of confusion on my part, sending out stuff multiple times, I apologize. But, but I, I pointed to this passage of Scripture in Romans 8, we're looking at the consummation of all things. We'll be glorified with Him in all of that. So will we be glorified in the end? Certainly, there is a part in there where we are glorified with Christ because we have believed into Him. But the second thing Peter is saying, and I believe this gives us the full orb view of this, is the glory that Christ is going to receive at His coronation. And we get a picture, a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 it says that around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, we're just seeing all of these things that are just so unusual, so profoundly unusual, and we're looking at it, and here's what's happening. They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Who's being recognized here? The Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down. And this is, this is actually happening but it is, a, it is pointing us to understand how we will view the glory that we receive when, when, when Christ comes. What did they do? Well, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. And then hear this. What do they do? They cast their crowns before the throne. In other words, they are relinquishing everything that they have been given in the way of glory. They relinquish everything and they lay it before the throne at His feet. And here's what they say. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor 
empower. In other words, you are worthy. I'm not. Thank you for the glory that you have given me, but take this glory and they lay it at his feet. I believe that's the fuller piece of what is being said because everywhere through Scripture, who do we see who is worthy to receive all the glory? Well, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so here's what is happening in the course of this uh, refining process. Uh, there's a picture from Roman times that helps us understand uh, this kind of this process, this purifying process. And the picture is seen in the way that grain was threshed. Uh, I haven't seen it in Roman times, but I've, I've watched them thresh grain in, in northern Ghana. I've seen them winnow it and beat, beat it to beat the grain out. But here's what would happen. Is that one man would toss the sheaves and just continue to stir them up. And there would be another man who would pull a sled over it. Was constantly pulling this sled. And on this sled were these cylinders or these rollers that had sharp stones and sharp pieces of metal attached to them. And what would happen is, is all along the way, this thing was being pulled and it was beating everything away so that all that was left was the grain. You know what this device was called? A tribulum. A tribulum. The same word we get tribulation from. What does tribulation and trial do to us? It refines the faith and produces a deeper love for Christ and a greater joy. And we see this because look at what happens next. This praise and honor and glory go to Christ. And then he says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe into Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There's not a one of us that have seen Jesus. Peter had. Is, that a, is, is us not having seen Jesus, is that an obstacle for us? Is that an obstacle for you? The fact that you haven't seen Jesus, is that an obstacle? Peter's saying absolutely not. He's writing these people. He's saying, I've seen Jesus, but you haven't seen Him and you love Him. And you haven't seen Him, but you rejoice in Him, and you love Him, and you believe into Him. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of the power of the grace of God in the Gospel to awaken our hearts to see Him in a way that does not prohibit us to believe in Him. So there are people who would say, well, I would trust Jesus if I had seen him like Peter. How many thousands of people saw Jesus and didn't believe in him? Didn't believe into him? 
That's not an obstacle. And that's the point that Peter is making is that you love Him, you believe in Him, and by the work of God's grace in you, there is such joy that is inexpressible. Now ask that of yourself. Is there such joy in your life because of you believing into Jesus that it is at a place in you that is so full that it is inexpressible? and filled with glory for Him. This is a characteristic of a believer. And then notice what he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see the connection of faith and belief and joy and life and love as it relates to the salvation of our souls. Now we have talked a little bit about this is a reward for our salvation. This is a reward of salvation in heaven. Here's what we have to look forward to in these days, and that is the refining of our faith. The testing of our faith. Why? To strengthen it so that we'll persevere to ensure that it is really faith, to ensure that it is really belief that we have. But now Peter gives them another word of encouragement, and that is he points them to the past glory of their salvation. In other words, the things that have taken place in the past that have been gracious toward them. Look at what he says. Now concerning this salvation, what salvation he's talking about? The salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, listen to this, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. In other words, the prophets were pointing to the grace that was to be yours. In other words, the prophets were pointing to Christ and His atoning work. And they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, in other words, or who and when, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. And here's what they got right. Notice what they got right here. He said, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You know what they got right? That suffering preceded glory. In other words, suffering preceded heaven. Suffering preceded reward. Suffering preceded, in the course of this, a faith that would enable us to believe into Him. He points to the encouragement that comes from knowing that the prophets had the believers in mind as they looked to God's salvation. Suffering would have to take place to bring about the glory of salvation. Isn't that what we see in Isaiah 53? Anybody remember the, the heading across Isaiah 53? The what? The suffering servant. The Holy Spirit was speaking through Isaiah pointing to the fact that the only way that there would come a resurrection would 
come His death. The only way that there would be forgiveness was through His atoning death. The only way that there would be this kingdom of people in this inheritance was He had to suffer. He had to suffer. The whole idea of suffering serves as a stumbling block to those who hear and reject the gospel. It just does. You know what they say? Is that God would suffer for the guilty that they would have life? It's foolishness to think that God Himself would suffer. And in line with that is the preaching of the gospel that now suffering as being connected to the gospel even as we live. Now, mind you, no one denies human suffering. Do you know anyone who denies human suffering? I, I don't. I don't know of anybody that denies it. They've experienced it. They felt it. They see it. They witness it. What they reject is, is the fact that God would even allow His children to suffer. And yet, what does Peter say? God sovereignly plans it so that they will persevere to the end and that their souls will be saved. You know, Paul saw the benefit of his own suffering as it helped the church. He, he, he writes this way. And he's writing to the Colossians. He said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That is the church. Now he's not saying that there was anything lacking in Christ. He's just saying that there is this ongoing suffering and struggling for the sake of the church. Why? Christ suffered, therefore we should expect to suffer. Christ faced hardship, we should expect to face hardship. Christ was tempted, we should expect to be tempted. Christ struggled, we should expect to struggle. Christ went hungry, we should expect to be hungry. Christ went thirsty. Paul says, I shouldn't expect anything less than what has come about with Christ. Christ was rejected. I should expect be rejected and Paul said I'm doing this and I am working and laboring he says become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known a point is if that is not taking place in our lives then we are not testimonies of the word of God we are not we are not to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of His mystery. Mystery of what? Mystery of suffering preceding glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How so? Encouraging them through the course of of their suffering. And he says, For this I told, struggling with all energy, he powerfully works within me. I want to make two more points, two sentences. He said, This should be an encouragement to you 
And then what does he say? And those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven should be an encouragement to you. Why? That's God's grace toward you. Our gathering here every week, working through a biblical text, that that has come before Oak Valley Church, all of those things pointing you to the gospel, encouraging you in the gospel is part of the grace of God toward you that should encourage you even in the midst of your suffering and that things into which angels long to look. I was thinking about that text this week over and over again. Even the angels serve as an encouragement to us. Do you know that they have witnessed the glorious work of God from the time they were created? Day in and day out, so it worth for ever how long they've been created. They have seen His work of grace toward His image bearers. They've witnessed all of this. They witnessed Christ leaving heaven and coming to earth. They witnessed His suffering and death. They witnessed His resurrection. They witnessed His return into heaven. And you know what? They long to see God's completed work because while God has seen it because He is all-knowing and His mind and His thinking is not trapped by time, they have not yet seen it. So even as they witness our struggles, they recognize the work of God's grace toward us and they are looking ahead to the consummation of God's redemptive work and the glory that we will receive, that they will never receive, and the glory then that we will lay down before Christ, a glory that they will never be able to give to Him because it is a glory that is only experienced by those who trusted in Christ. So let's return to our aim this morning. Has your hope been awakened to the joy that is in knowing Christ? It's not just a passing thing where somebody says, believe in Jesus and I believe in Jesus and I show up at church. I might read my Bible once in a while. I might pray once in a while. And that's the extent. That is not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been convicted over the sin of your complaining about the struggles that you have? For two or three weeks I've been complaining. Janice can tell you about it if she decides to. But I've been complaining. I have. Just been, I've been complaining. I've been struggling and I've been complaining. And, and and it came this morning as I've continued to study this. I've run, I've run headlong into it. And yesterday I was talking with a pastor friend of mine who was complaining. And here we were commiserating and we were complaining about all of this stuff. 
And I texted him this morning at 4 o'clock. I said, brother, I've been deeply convicted that I should be rejoicing in the midst of the struggles. Rejoicing in the ongoing work. Rejoicing in the struggle of taking care of my daddy. Rejoicing in the struggle of being a part of a church plant where we're having to do things different. All the struggles, all the fatigue, I should be rejoicing in those things. And you know what? I broke out in praise in my own heart. And when I texted him, I said, Brother, I'm praying for you. He texted me just before I came in here. Uh, he said, Brother, he said, I am convicted as well. I had pointed him to the text. Why? Because if we're complaining and we're bellyaching about our struggles and our hardship, then we are resisting the refining work of our faith which leads to the salvation of our souls. And that, my brothers and sisters in Christ, leads me to say today that my love has been propelled and I want it to remain propelled in this life and that it will overshadow all other desires. And I hope that for us. Pray with me, please. Father, in my own life, I'm sickened that I have rejected that refining work. A work that ultimately brings glory to You and a deeper love for You. And even now, Father, I ask that You would work within us that we would avail ourselves to all that You have And that you would make it as hard as it needs to be for as long as it needs to be until our faith ultimately is brought to the place that would bring us to breathe our last breath and enter into glory, receive glory, and then pour our glory upon you, Christ Jesus. Because you, the Prince of Life without stain, took on my sin and took on our sin and gave us life. Father, help us as we bear witness of the gospel in these days. In Jesus' name, amen.